We're really excited to finish the year off with a series of three talks from from Rick. Um, Rick Rick's the kind of thinker and talker who, sure, he's ed- educated and articulate, but he's incredibly exploratory and authentically open to explore the mystery and wonders that that is Christ. And um, that's that's the journey he wants to take us on over these three talks. It's provocatively called you know, Design as the New Theology. And in behind that that um, that that naming is a change of language and that um, what Rick calls the grammar of life, because we've we've we box ourselves in too often as Christians with religious language, and which doesn't communicate well. But more importantly, um, it constrains our thinking, and our God becomes a religious God rather than the God of the whole earth. And so, Rick's um, Rick's series is a deliberate um, move to shift our paradigms. Um, and it's almost like you've been in a a dark room or a shaded room and, and someone throws the curtains open and, and, and light comes in that's initially a bit blinding. And that's, that's what Rick's talks will be like. I mean, it's a personal journey. Rick is um, pioneering this journey in his own life and his own thinking, so it's genuine R&D. It's not like it's a polished, finished journey. But uh, and talk number one is very much a setup, um, as in he's reorienting. Um, he's giving us begins quite personally in this first half of the talk with uh, his own journey of understanding and faith and, and where he is on that journey. Uh, now, talk one is in two parts. Um, uh, Rick is not known for um, uh, economy of. Uh, presentation and we provide in gospel conversations the kind of forum where people want depth and they don't want a 20-minute sermon. They actually want to really get into some big ideas and explore them. So what Rick does here is talks for 45 minutes or so and there are two presentations included in, in those talks. Uh, which I think are, uh, are audible enough on, on the tape, I hope so. And if, if there's any difficulty with them, then um, uh, the, the, uh, we're, we're going to post the video of the talks um, on um, our Gospel Conversations website and, and certainly the, the video captures uh, the talks well. Um, when we send out... This will also send out a independent reference to the talk so that if you want to, um, you can access both talks individually to know what he's talking about. Um, so the first 45 minutes, that's, uh, that's what he covers. Um, then there's a break, and the break opened up for discussion, which is not recorded here. And then there's a concluding part two, um, which is, in a sense, tighter. And it's really a... a a summary of the Edwin Judge talks uh, 
in Rick's style because Edwin's talks have really influenced Rick. And that's a, that, that'll be part two, which will be posted shortly, which is about 20 minutes. So two talks. This is the first one. Um, enjoy it. So, yeah, so tonight's the first of three. It's a journey. Um, the dangerous thing about Rick is if you tell him something, he takes it seriously and runs with it. And uh, the story of Al, whereas I'm the sort of person who just plays with ideas, you know, and I forget about them. <laughs> so, so, um, so, but it's really, I think, it, uh, seriously, the kind of relationship. Obviously, I'm a practitioner of design and innovation. Think a lot about my faith in that space, but don't have a lot of time to think about it. Um, and whereas, whereas Rick is really living in a world of theology and, and uh, as, as you know, we've shared ideas, um, he's taken the ideas of design and rhetoric into theology and thought its implications through. And, and I've personally been blessed by the bounce back um, between, between the two of us. I think um, Rick has got really attracted to the idea of design more than I expected. But if you substitute creation for design, because they're synonyms, um, and if you sort of, that starts to make sense around, a, let's call it a creation theology. Um, and uh, I think a lot of us, uh, a lot of the modern church, I think, is kind of stuck in an over-redemptive, over-religious language, and we you know, can't get out of that. Um, and one of the ways to get out of being stuck is to use alternative language. It's almost metaphorical, so... So Rick's even, you know, said, well, what if we substitute the word design for theology? I don't know where he'll go with that tonight, but that's, a, that's what we would that's call... That's next time. So, so the, um, the creation theology, which obviously has been one of the major themes we've had in gospel conversations uh, for a long time, um, if you use the word design as a pretty good synonym for creation, then this gives a... And you then go into the whole of the narrative of the gospel through that doorway rather than through the kind of redemption door. Not to say it's an either-or, but I think it's a new perspective. And I thought I'd give a plug at the moment for um, what's rapidly becoming my favourite book. Um, <laughs> so this is actually, I was listening to David Bentley Hart, um, which is always fun because he's so naughty and nasty. and <laughs> Like, I had to have him as an enemy. Um, um, and, uh, you know, his hero is Gregory of Nyssa, and he, he, it was this book he said is, you know, to him the greatest, or, you know, one of the, if not the greatest, but certainly right up there in terms of profundity of the church, and so I bought it and I'm reading it and I think, wow, this is it. It's Gregory Nyssa on the making of man, absolutely breathtaking. Um, and, uh... Uh, you know, I read a bit of it uh, on the upper room, and it was, wasn't it? It was wondrous stuff. I mean, it's just like... And um, it's almost like what it reminds me of is Ephesians 1, which I've learned off by heart because I just feel that uh, Ephesians 1 is very um, symptomatic of Paul's mind. And it's almost like he's, in Ephesians 1, taking us back right into the, 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 the womb of the universe the conception of all things, because I think he saw that in the third heaven. And his prayer, essentially, in Ephesians 1, is that you would get it. <laughs> this is no accident what's happened to you. This is not a kind of rescue plan. This began a long time ago before the creation of the world. 
and, and Gregory of Nyssa goes on that same journey into the creation. And what, what you sort of realise, what I realised reading this book and others is, if you start there, it just opens up a whole new series. You start to be able to read everything in with fresh eyes. So tonight, uh, I'm sure Rick will take us nicely um, on that journey. Um, and um, in my, uh, I'll just say one other thing, which is uh, rather proudly, I have an article in this month's uh, Harvard Business Review, which is the sort of high high point of business publications and uh, largely through my friend Roger Martin, so we wrote the article together, but it's actually on these things. It's actually arguing for human creativity. It's called Management is Not Just a Science, because I, I view science and scientism and rationality as a kind of anti-humanist movement of object, uh, objectification. So Harvard grappled over publishing this article because um, it was so radical that they went ahead and published it. So if you Google Harvard Business Review, you can read the article, which would give you a totally other um, case study of, of the case for human creativity in, in large human systems. Um, so, And certainly as I go on, the more I go on in my life and the fights I fight, I am aware that um, the struggle... If, if, you, if you take the journey we're going to take in creativity, um, people think, well, that, you know, that's, not an arg- that, that, that's not a controversial position to take, whereas if you're, you know, the traditional reform position of sin and, sin and we're all sinned, that's very controversial. Well, let me tell you, that's not true, because the modern battleground is over the uniqueness of humanity. I'm fighting it with things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and the worldview behind that language. And it's almost as a kind of a move of human <laughs> beings to the edge of organisations and to the edge of things and a kind of a crushing of the human spirit. It's a visceral fight. Um, and so I, I sort of think if you, if you begin with creation and human beings need advocates today. Uh, advocates, apostles who say there is something glorious about being a human being and made in the image of God, that's actually increasingly a controversial position to take. So, um, and I think it's a, it's a it's, but it is a message of hope. A lot, of, a lot of people want to hear it. They want to hear that message. So um, I think the, the arena that uh, Rick's going to take us down is both very promising. Um, people want to hear it, but it's actually, I think it's a modern battleground. So with no further ado, I'm going to pray, Rick, and then we'll turn over to you. Thanks, Lord, for the, the, the gospel, which began breaking upon the world, well, long before even the writers of the New Testament with Abraham and your, your, your self-revelation um, to our planet and to us. And we're, we're continuing on that journey tonight of um, understanding you, to know God and to love God and know uh, the, uh, as Bentley Hart said, the fascination with Christ. Um, help Rick tonight. We thank you for him. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his, uh, not just his abilities, more what he does with that in terms of uh, passion and feeding us. And we just look forward to the next three weeks and ask you to really uh, present yourself with us as we go on this journey. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, all yours. I think we're still turned on. You're always turned on. It is. Don't know what to do with that, but <laughs> okay. Don't Absolutely. know what to do with it. Thank you. <laughs> we'll just um, we'll just wave this show and see what happens. What are you it won't turn off. It'll pop it in my pocket. Well, I don't know. 
Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. Well, um, first of all, it's uh, great to see you all here tonight, and uh, it's going to sound like a mutual admiration society to start off with, but uh, some of you, I was actually chatting to someone. Um, when was that, back at Macquarie University? At Menzies College. Menzies College, years and years ago. Uh, Part of this will come up in the, the narrative here. Um, let me just say a bit about how I got to meet Tony, and then we'll come into more of the where this is going tonight. But um, I've been trying to think through kind of a biblical theology. I've been very helped by someone called Meredith Klein with a K. You know what heard of Meredith? Yeah. Right? Amazing stuff. Um, uh, one of my most blessed mentors actually thought that Meredith was a bit nutty, and when I said I really liked him, he was quite shocked. I won't mention his name for that reason. Uh, but I think Meredith is a, probably a century ahead of his time, and he was just doing some great stuff. He was the first one who really helped me see the role of metaphor and image in what I now am pleased to call Israel Scriptures. So I probably should just put a little footnote there. Um, I really don't like the word Old Testament, and I'm becoming increasingly pugnacious about that. Uh, first of all, if neither Jesus nor those who knew him best Peter, James, John, Paul, who met him on the road to Damascus, if they never use that term, then who in a very hot place's name do we think we are to do something different? And I think what that's done actually just harmed us in all kinds of ways because um, there are all kinds of historical reasons for this too. People moving into um, the first and second and third century, and particularly if they're Hellenistic Christians, they have a certain view of the nature of truth, and for them, Judaism by the fact that it's very limited culturally, that it's passed because the gospel has come, and for a few other reasons, basically regarded that as passe, and the gospel is this new universal thing. I think that's one of the reasons why they talked about the Old Testament. But I, I think it's a serious mistake they made, and we'll talk about more of that today. Anyway, so I've been trying to think through what it actually means to let Israel's scriptures set up its own categories for us. So I've done some sociology in my long journey toward adulthood. I'm probably still not there yet. I certainly don't behave like it. Uh, and that included doing some sociology and realising that um, you can see every mountain except the one upon which you are standing. You can see every mountain except the one upon which you are standing. So we all know about water except for the fish is in it, right? So uh, the idea there was to try and say, well, I've got all these preconceptions. I've grown up as a Christian. I've inherited all of those. Uh, what if I tried to let those go? I don't know that you can't actually do that entirely, but you can be conscious of it. What if I tried to let that go and let Scripture set up for you how I should approach things? And this is where it was just beginning. Meredith Klein helped me with this. So the notion of seeing creation as God's temple, very, very helpful. Uh, some of the things he had to teach us on the image of God and so at Macquarie, we started with that, right? What does it mean for creation to be God's temple? Well, a couple of things. We're not going to heaven. Heaven's coming. He would flow out of that. That there's something sacred about the physical world coming out of that. Christianity is really the true materialism. It doesn't force you to make a choice. Right? You actually have both the spiritual and the material together and both of them elevated. And I think you need both of those things. And it was in the context of talking about image, I think we were talking about the idea of God making us mini-creators and what that might mean. And I think I had a little lament. Why is it the Christians are not known for being at the forefront of innovation and creativity and imagination? That kind of struck me as just an interesting one. 
And I wonder, part of the talk tonight will be, I think it's the way we've chosen to talk about God that is in some ways um, intentionally or no uh, debilitated us in thinking creativity, uh, creatively and with imagination. So, uh, Anyway, I gave the little talk at Macquarie um, Menzies College and this guy comes up and enfolds me in these huge arms. You ever had him stretch his arms? I mean, it's amazing. You should have played basketball. You could have been a goalkeeper, right? Just... And I was thinking, my goodness, who's this? Uh, and uh, remember, get me if I'm wrong here, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said something like, at last somebody who knows how to do theology or something of that kind. And I'm thinking, okay, good. And then the next question was, I think, where are you staying this weekend or something? Anyway, we ended up um, forming this friendship that's really, I think, been very transformative in the way I've thought about Scripture. So very grateful for that. Okay? So that's the Mutual Admiration Society bit. Uh, it'll probably seep up on odd occasion, so just be prepared. Uh, tonight, <clears throat> to get into this, um, I've just come back from the UK and I was over there to work with the Bible Society and a couple of other places thinking through what it meant for them to redefine themselves in the modern world. Right, uh, they've got Bible Society, long history, incredible resources, but how in the world do they speak to the UK in the 20th century or 21st century? Oh, what happened there? Oh, Microsoft Word. Oh, gee. We love you too. <laughs> Yes, I actually run Microsoft Word on a Mac. It's the one app I have that doesn't work. Okay, enough already. <laughs> so we're in the UK, and, and a couple of things happened I think will serve as a nice way into this. Uh, the first one was uh, when I got there, I was staying in Burford in the Cotswolds, and the Bible Society has a, this program they run where they offer uh, scholarships to budding filmmakers. And they don't have to be Christian, but the script has to be in some way based on scripture. And they'd awarded one of those, and it was being shot in Wales, about two hours away from where I was living or staying at the time. And they arranged for a guy to pick me up in a semi-limo, not a really big one, but a nice one. And uh, he was going to drive me out to Wales, and I'd be there for a couple of hours and watch them do the film shoot and talk to the director about the script and the producer, that kind of stuff. Then I come home, right? So uh, we're heading off, and I get chatting to him, as is my want. I just find people really interesting. Uh, and we probably talked for 25 minutes about what he'd done, and it turned out he was an XIT consultant, and uh, he loved restoring vehicles, and had just restored three German half-tracks from World War II, right? So I'm looking at Chef because he restores not quite those kinds of things, but something similar. So, uh, you know, I happen to have an interest in that bit of history, so I took him about all of that, and then he got on to his broken marriage that hadn't worked, a relationship with his kids, and amazing how people open up. So uh, that's a great conversation. And then he said, so what do you do, right? And this is always the tricky one uh, because your response can bring a conversation to a screaming halt if you're not careful, right? So you try to work out where people are. Like um, saying you're a theologian doesn't always get things moving very quickly. People might get up and move, but conversations <laughs> won't. Okay? So um, I said, well, you know, I have an interest in design and, um, and history of ideas and um, how that relates to the first century. And, you know, they're all buzzwords, but you have to connect the dots. Okay? <laughs> and, uh, and I mentioned, well, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the Bible as well and how that informed this. And he said, well, you know, look, um, I don't want to pick a fight. But just so you know, I'm an atheist. 
I do not believe in God. I think religion and the church in particular is responsible for most of the trouble in the world. Right? Just saying, no fight, just saying. Right? <laughs> okay, that's fine. And um, so he said, so what do you think about that? And I said, well, why don't you tell me why? And so he responded and he just gave me a little kind of postage stamp view of history. And I tried as kindly as I could to correct some of that. And after about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of that exchange, I said to him, look, you know, I don't want to keep going on about this. I don't want to bore you. And he said, oh, no, no, let's keep talking. We talked for three more hours. Right? That's the rest of the way there and two hours coming back. And he said to me several times, oh, you have completely fried my brain. So when he finally dropped me off at the Cotswolds, he jumped out of the car, came around and he shook my hand and he said, again, you completely fried my brain. I really have to think through all of this. I have so many questions. And then he said, and you need to make a documentary. People need to hear this, right? So I've been talking to the Bible Society about doing that, and uh, that might be something good. And the basic thesis of that conversation was that the modern world is fundamentally Christian. Right? And uh, you can't be modern without being fundamentally Christian. It's just impossible. Now, for most people, being Christian means believing in Jesus. And of course it does, but that's a very limited view an important part. Don't ever hear me downgrade that. I think Jesus is humongous. Right? I think he's amazing. But he's much bigger than just the redemption and the it's a huge thing that this has opened up. And this guy couldn't believe it. I think the most shocking thing for him was he had a vision of religion in the church that he thought was opposed to life, trafficked in guilt and fear, to use Mark Strom's language, it was not about creativity. And as a result of our conversation, he discovered that the world he loved was actually the world that the Christian gospel had given him. And that's what completely threw him. Didn't know what to do with it. So uh, we parted on very warm terms. I'm thinking, gee, that's amazing. I haven't really had an evangelistic moment like that for a while. Okay. And, then, um, and that was one. And then a few days later, I'm traveling from Euston Station up to Birmingham New Street. Anyone like traveling on English trains? Oh, Fantastic. Convenient. Oh, haven't you? Oh, brilliant. I love it, right? So um, I'm on this train heading up and uh, not too many people get on at Euston. There's an Italian guy who does. Uh, I don't know he's Italian until I start talking to him, as I do. Uh, he's got some breakfast. I don't have any. So we begin by a common lament over the state of English coffee, <laughs> which is pretty miserable. <laughs> so we talked about that and then we got on to where he came from in Italy. I could tell from his accent and then into cheeses and Italian wine. And we're having a great time celebrating all of this and... In fact, probably too much of a good time. I needed to get to work and he wanted to keep talking. So uh, anyway, I eventually managed to get to what we needed to do. But he's still intrigued. He keeps looking at me and, you know, offering little comments and things. So that's good. Uh, did I mention he's an engineer? Okay. So I discovered what he was doing. He was sad. And about 20 minutes before we get to Birmingham New Street, uh, he can see on the table at which we're sitting... Uh, the spine of a book that was about Christian humanism, and he just caught the human bit, and he said, oh, so you work for a humanitarian society. Now, by this time, the train's pretty full. All right, so there's a person, we're at a table, person sitting here, he's there, and then over on the side are two businessmen tapping away on their computers, and I say, well, it's not quite that, and now I'm thinking, how do I engage this guy in conversation? Now, a little footnote, I learned a lot from John's Gospel about how to do this. John's Gospel has the most extended in, uh, stories of Jesus' engagement with people. There's fewer of them, but much more developed. And one thing that's really struck me is the way he really attends to where they are before he launches in. Right? 
Right, so he'll start where people are. And uh, so I tried to start where this guy was, and I said, well, actually, um, no, I'm not really humanitarian, but I do things like I go to China to teach uh, students in Chinese universities how to read the Bible because, I'm not going to let me jump in, um, the Chinese government's asked us to do this because they realized that Christianity was the engine of modernity, right? So I've got to get that whole sentence out before he gets a chance, right? Just, okay, got to get that one on the table so he doesn't jump in at the wrong point. And, uh, and he's like, what? Well, you asked, okay? <laughs> so the conversation began, and I'm trying to keep my voice down, but it becomes clear after a while that the person over here, this woman, is valiantly pretending to read her book, but she's not actually. <laughs> I can tell. Her eyes are just, she hasn't turned a page in a while. And uh, uh, If you've ever been a lecturer, you might know. You can see everything in that lecture room. You might think you're hiding tonight. Uh, you would be surprised how much we can see from up here, right? It's just, okay. Uh, oh, safety in numbers. No, there isn't. Right? <laughs> Right? And uh, so I kept on talking a bit more and you know, this, eventually she just gives up. She just puts a book down and listens. And the two guys on the other side, that, they've kind of stopped typing and I realise I've got this audience of about five or six people in this part of it. Right? And just the kinds of things we've talked about at Gospel Conversations, how the modern world with uh, change, design, hope, transformation, all that stuff comes only from the Gospel, comes only from the Gospel. And uh, anyway, I got to Birmingham New Street and we really hadn't got partway through the conversation. And uh, I said, look, I'm really sorry, I have to go. He stood up, right? leaned over the table and shook my hand vigorously and said, I am so, so sorry. I did not ask you what you did before. This is just mind boggling. He said, I am so fascinated. Where do I get more? Well, unfortunately, we have neither the documentary nor the book yet, but let's hope we can get one coming. So um, all of that to say... Uh, I don't know about you, but for a lot of my life, I just did not know what to do with Jesus and the world around me. I knew it was real, you know, what I, what I experienced in church on a Sunday in prayer groups, but I had no idea how that moved into the larger world. And what Second Roads helped me see through Tony, but also what's this creation theology and a few other things, have helped me realize that actually, I'd even make such strong statements as to say the Bible is the beating heart of modernity. That might sound like a really outrageous statement, but it certainly gets people's attention, right? <laughs> which is the point. Right? So um, what I'm planning to do over the next three sessions tonight is to try and get us all on the same page. So some of this you might have heard, some of this is going to be reviewed, some of it I hope will be new, but I need to have kind of a common foundation to move on to something at uh, the next two sessions. Is that okay? It has to be. I have the, mic I have the microphone. All right, good. So, uh, I want you to watch this as we get in. Uh, some of you might have seen it. It's a TED Talk. Over the past 10 years, I've been researching the way people organize and visualize information. And I've noticed an interesting shift. For a long period of time, we believed in a natural ranking order in the world around us, also known as the great chain of being, or scala natura in Latin, a top-down structure that normally starts with God at the very top, followed by angels, noblemen, common people, animals, and so on. This idea was actually based on Aristotle's 
ontology, which classified all things known to man in a set of opposing categories, like the ones you see behind me. But over time, interestingly enough, this concept adopted the branching schema of a tree, in what became known as the Porphyrian tree, also considered to be the oldest tree of knowledge. The branching scheme of the tree was, in fact, such a powerful metaphor for conveying information that it became, over time, an important communication tool to map a variety of systems of knowledge. We can see trees being used to map morality with its popular tree of virtues and tree of vices, as you can see here in these beautiful illustrations from medieval Europe. We can see trees being used to map consanguinity, the various blood ties between people. We can also see trees. Being used to map genealogy, perhaps the most famous archetype of the tree diagram. I think many of you in the audience have probably seen family trees. Many of you probably even have your own family trees drawn in such a way. We can see trees even mapping systems of law, the various decrees and rulings of kings and rulers. And finally, of course, also a very popular scientific metaphor. We can see trees being used to map all species known to man. And trees ultimately became such a powerful visual metaphor because, in many ways, they really embody this human desire for order, for balance, for unity, for symmetry. However, nowadays we are really facing new, complex, intricate challenges that cannot be understood by simply employing a simple tree diagram. And a new metaphor is currently emerging, and it's currently replacing the tree in visualizing various systems of knowledge. It's really providing us with a new lens to understand the world around us, and this new metaphor is the metaphor of the network. And we can see this shift from trees into networks in many domains of knowledge. We can see this shift in the way we try to understand the brain. While before we used to think of the brain as a modular, centralized organ where a given area was responsible for a set of actions and behaviors. The more we know about the brain, the more we think of it as a large music symphony played by hundreds and thousands of instruments. This is a beautiful snapshot created by the Blue Brain Project, where you can see 10,000 neurons and 30 million connections. And this is only mapping 10% of a mammalian neocortex. We can also see this shift in the way we try to conceive human knowledge. These are some remarkable trees of knowledge or trees of science by Spanish scholar Ramon Llull, and Llull was actually the precursor, the very first one, who created a metaphor of science as a tree, a metaphor we use every single day when we say biology is a branch of science, when we say genetics is a branch of science. But perhaps the most beautiful of all trees of knowledge, at least for me, was created for the French Encyclopedia by Diderot and d'Alembert in 1751. This was really the bastion of the French Enlightenment, and this gorgeous illustration was featured as a table of contents for the encyclopedia. And it actually illustrates, it maps out all domains of knowledge as separate branches of a tree. But knowledge is much more intricate than this. These are two maps of Wikipedia showing the interlinkage of articles related to history on the left and mathematics on the right. And I think by looking at these maps and the other ones that have been created of Wikipedia, arguably one of the largest rhizomatic structures ever created by man, we can really understand how human knowledge is much more intricate and interdependent, just like a network. 
We can also see this interesting shift in the way we map social ties between people. This is the typical organizational chart. I'm assuming many of you have seen a similar chart as well in your own corporations or others. It's a top-down structure that normally starts with the CEO at the very top, and where you can drill down all the way to the individual workman on the bottom. But humans sometimes are well. Actually, all humans are really unique in their own way, and sometimes you really don't play well under this really rigid structure. I think the internet is really changing this paradigm quite a lot. This is a fantastic map of online social collaboration between Perl developers. And Perl is a famous programming language. And here you can see how different programmers are actually changing files and working together on a given project. And here you can notice that this is a completely decentralized process. There's no leader in this organization. It's a network. We can also see this interesting shift. When we look at terrorism, one of the main challenges of understanding terrorism nowadays is that we are dealing with decentralized, independent cells where there's no leader leading the whole process. And here you can actually see how visualization is being used. The diagram that you see behind me is showing all the terrorists involved in the Madrid attack in 2004. And what they did here is that they actually segmented the network into three different years, represented by the vertical layers that you see behind me. And the blue lines tie together the people that were present in that network year after year. So even though there's no leader per se, these people are probably the most influential ones in that organization, the ones that know more about the past and the future plans and goals of this particular cell. We can also see this shift from trees into networks in the way we classify and organize species. The image on the right. Is the only illustration that Darwin included in the Origin of Species, which Darwin calls the Tree of Life. And there's actually a letter from Darwin to the publisher, expanding on the importance of this particular diagram. It was critical for Darwin's theory on evolution. But recently, scientists discovered that overlaying this Tree of Life is a dense network of bacteria, and these bacteria is actually tying together species that were completely separated before, to what scientists are now calling. Not the tree of life, but the web of life, the network of life. And finally, we can really see this shift again when we look at ecosystems around our planet. No more do we have these simplified predator versus prey diagrams we have all learned at school. This is a much more accurate depiction of an ecosystem. This is a diagram created by Professor David Levine, mapping close to 100 species that interact with the codfish off the coast of Newfoundland in Canada. And、I think here we can really understand the intricate and interdependent nature of most ecosystems that are bound to our planet. But even though recent, this metaphor, the metaphor of the network, is really already adopting various shapes and forms, and it's almost becoming a growing visual taxonomy. It's almost becoming the syntax of a new language, and this is one aspect that truly fascinates me. And these are actually 15 different typologies I've been collecting over the time. And it really shows the immense visual diversity of this new metaphor. And here's an example: the first, on the very top band, you have radial convergence, a model, visualization model that has become really popular over the last five years. And the top left, the very first project, is a gene network, followed by a network of IP addresses, machines, servers, followed by a network of Facebook friends. You probably couldn't find more disparate topics. Yet they are using the same metaphor, the same visual model 
to map the inherent complexities of its own subjects. And here are a few more examples of the many I've been collecting of this growing visual taxonomy of networks. But networks are not just a scientific metaphor. As designers, researchers, and scientists try to map a variety of complex systems, they are in many ways influencing traditional art fields like painting and sculpture, and influencing many different artists. And perhaps because networks have this huge aesthetical force to them, they are immensely gorgeous. They are really becoming a cultural meme and driving a new art movement, which I've called networkism. And we can see this influence in this movement in a variety of ways. This is just one of many examples where you can see this influence from science into art. The example on your left side is IP mapping, a computer-generated map of IP addresses against servers, machines. And on your right side, you have transient structures and unstable networks by Sharon Malloy using all an animal on canvas. And here are a few more paintings by Sharon Malloy, some gorgeous, intricate paintings. And here's another example of that interesting cross-pollination between science and art. On your left side, you have Operation Smile. It is a computer-generated map of a social network. And on your right side, you have Field Four by Emma McNally, using only graphite on paper. Emma McNally is one of the main leaders of this movement, and she creates these striking imaginary landscapes where you can really notice the influence from traditional network visualization. But networkism doesn't happen only in two dimensions. This is perhaps one of my favorite projects of this new movement, and I think the title really says it all. It's called "Galaxies Forming Along Filaments Like Droplets Along the Strands of a Spider's Web." And I just find this particular project to be immensely powerful. It was created by Thomas Sarasano, and he occupies these large spaces, creates these massive installations using only elastic ropes. As you actually navigate that space and bounce in one of those elastic ropes. The entire network kind of shifts, almost like a real organic network would. And here's yet another example of networkism taking to a whole different level. This was created by Japanese artist Shiaru Shiota in a piece called In Silence. And Shiota, like Thomas Arasano, fills these rooms with this dense network, this dense web of elastic ropes and black woolen thread, sometimes including objects, as you can see here. Sometimes even including people in many of our installations. But networks are also not just a new trend, and it's too easy for us to dismiss it as such. Networks really embody notions of decentralization, of interconnectedness, of interdependence, and this new way of thinking is critical for us to solve many of the complex problems we are facing nowadays, from decoding the human brain to understanding the vast universe out there. On your left side, you have a snapshot of a neural network of a mouse, very similar to our own at this particular scale. And on your right side, you have the Millennium Simulation. It was the largest and most realistic simulation of the growth of cosmic structure. It was able to recreate the history of 20 million galaxies in approximately 25 terabytes of output. And coincidentally or not, I just find this particular comparison between the smallest scale of knowledge. The brain and the larger scale of knowledge, the universe itself, to be really, really quite striking and fascinating, because as Bruce Mao once said, when everything is connected to everything else, for better or worse, everything matters. Thank you so much.
Okay, so uh, wakey wakey, why do you think I showed you that tonight? <clears throat> what might this have to do with talking about God, theology, design? Yeah. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's breaking up the silos of different forms of mm -hmm. knowledge. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Metaphors we choose are all for those of Yeah, yeah. They're all good, and I'm, I have to say, I'm not actually at the end of this journey by any stretch. This is one of the great things about the R&D exercise of gospel conversations. We can kind of explore this, right? Uh, but I've raised for a couple of reasons. One is... Um, I'd like to think about what this means for actually doing theology. Right? Uh, and uh, I'm going to, if I have to, well, put some cards on the table now. If I had to compare what I've learnt reading scripture, right, becoming more aware of how that works biblical, in terms of biblical theology, and the way I was first introduced to doing theology many, many years ago through a, a certain well-known systematics textbook, I could kind of align one approach with one aspect demonstrated here and another approach with another aspect, but I'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. All right. So I think this does have implications of how we think about God and how we talk about him. It's going to require some change. And secondly, just in terms of where I want to go tonight, at least to get started here, um, I'm always interested in why people ask the questions they do. Right? So it's one thing to say, oh, they, you know, that person came to a wrong conclusion. Much more interesting for me to ask, well, why did they? What lay behind that? Right? Uh, and so I'm doing that with myself, actually. I may well be coming to a wrong conclusion. But what I'm trying to do as we get started is just to talk about some of the things in my own life that have given rise to these kinds of questions, if that can help you. So uh, in biblical studies these days, it's kind of the appropriate thing to do to say where you're coming from rather than simply sitting down and writing a book, because everyone recognises everyone has a perspective. So this is something about mine. Uh, and it's a network of experiences. And no, this is not me. I'm going to keep my shirt on. It's OK. Right? Um, so just in terms of my own life, uh, charismatic, Pentecostal, um, have actually experienced God do some amazing things, been involved in things I could only call miraculous healing. So I actually don't like the word miracle, but that's another conversation. Uh, pardon? Semi-miraculous. Oh, semi-miraculous. <laughs> well, I think uh, John would call them signs and the synoptics would call them mighty deeds. So I participated in a few mighty deeds right? uh, that have gone beyond any ability to explain this. And I knew that was real. I, you know, I have tremendous memories as a young person of encountering God's presence, just transformative. right? And you can't put it into words. Mm any more than you can try and describe a good Shiraz. I mean, you can't do it. You know those, you said those tasting notes? What a load of old cobblers. I mean, who are they trying to kid? <laughs> they don't even come close, right? So how do you talk about those hugely formative things? I had a number of those, but I'm an engineer, right? So I know about math or maths, depending what side of the pond you come from. And uh, that was one of my great shocks, I think. I loved aircraft and discovered it was all about mathematics, which is a bit of a you know, disillusioning moment. <laughs> But as I've said to people, what's 
a turbofan at 30,000 feet got to do with what was going on in my kind of Christian experience. I really couldn't tie those things together. Uh, and then the whole faith versus reason thing. I thought the solution was for me to go to uh, La Trobe University and do a course in philosophy, one in sociology and one in art history. Right? So I need to somehow sort this out. And of course, you know, once you're in that realm, you're doing the whole faith versus reason thing you know, in search of truth. And uh, I personally find that distinction very unhelpful. Uh, when the disciples are in the boat and they see Jesus tell the storm what to do, there's no faith. They're scared spitless or something that sounds like that. Right? But there's no faith involved. And when Moses is there at the foot of the mountain, there's no faith involved in that. It's, it's exactly the same epistemology as Galileo turning his telescope to the moon and going, oh my goodness, it's not perfect. Right? It's exactly that same kind of epistemology. Um, and a lot of these guys who do reason, actually, as you would know, having done, if you've listened to Edwin's talks, go down the pure reason road, you never get science. Uh, so that's the positive of the so-called faith side. It's not really faith at all. A lot of it's experience. It might be trust in terms of eyewitness testimony, trusting what other people tell you. But it's certainly not disembodied faith versus some kind of perfect abstract reasoning. And then Paul, on the other hand, is an amazing thinker. Uh, the more I've got to read through um, Paul in Romans, I mean, this guy is as sharp as three tacks. He's phenomenal. Uh, my area is actually how the New Testament makes use of Israel's scriptures. Da -da -da -da, right? And when you watch Paul in Romans 9 through 11, he's just on song. I mean, some verses, there's three references to Israel's scriptures. And you go back and look at what's going on, and he's just this maestro. He's plucking all these different... Uh, Streams of God's relationship with his people and welding them, bringing them together in this amazing tapestry. Right? He's really a sharp guy, so it's not about that. Right? I think that's to misconstrue the whole thing. There's got to be another way of talking about the distinction. And part of my journey into that was this whole philosophy versus history thing. Um, so I took a class in philosophy and actually did end up throwing in my faith for a while there. Right? Uh, until uh, a couple of things happened in that process. I was doing art history and I realised philosophy could never help me understand what I enjoyed about Chagall. Anyone like Chagall? Right? And it could never help me. And I thought, OK, that's a problem. Right? Uh, and then I have to confess, uh, there was a band once called Little River Band. <laughs> they came and played at La Trobe and I had my first experience. Okay. And uh, I remember sitting there thinking, I've been in prayer meetings that are better than this. What in the world am I doing? And I had been, right? I, I knew prayer meetings in my background where we thought we'd been praying for 15 minutes and we'd been praying for two hours. Just incredible sense of God's presence. And I had to make a choice. Was I going to go with what people tell me could only be true or what I myself had actually experienced? And in the end, I went with my experience. I was going to go with my love for Chagall, whether philosophy could tell me about it or not. Okay? So really what was going on there, the combination of these factors, realisation that there are different grammars for talking about different kinds of things. So um, Qantas, yes, I hope they see this. I'm a frequent flyer. Give me some extra points, please. Upgrade or something. Uh, and then, of course, is Chagall. Uh, and then philosophy, so engineering, art history, philosophy. You can talk about each one of those things. They have particular grammar for each discourse, but that doesn't mean they're transferable. 
So how do they relate? What makes sense of the person who's doing the thinking in the middle of all of this? So coming out of the different grammars then, Tony's alluded to this, uh, how does religious language work in modernity? And I think that was a reference to redemption. Uh, When I'm on the train talking to this guy in the the cab, uh, the limo, talking to the um, ex-IT consultant, about what life is, I'm pretty sure if I'd started with redemption, I wouldn't have got anywhere near the response I got when I was actually dealing with the modern world in which he lived. So that's partly what's been driving this discussion. Uh, If this God stuff is real, it ought to be able to speak to the world I'm in. And if it can't do that, I'm kidding myself. So... I wonder if our religious language has somehow been part of the problem in uh, silencing our ability to talk about what God really has been doing, to try and find new language to do that. Okay. Then fixity versus strategy. Uh, if I think about my education, I don't think in my... What have I done? Uh, Forgive me, I've done two master's degrees, one in Old Testament, one in New Testament. Uh, That was about, I don't know, all up, four and a half years of study or something. I don't think I ever heard the word strategy mentioned once in biblical studies classes or my traditional theology classes. And uh, the funny, the thing that shocks me is I never actually asked that question (laughs) Until I met somebody who talked about strategy. See what that is? It's it's the stuff you don't know that you want to be really worried about, right? The people who don't know what they don't know. And that's what was going on here. It just never occurred to me to even ask, why is that word not there? Given that strategy is so part of what our world's currently about. And then I realized that that so much of what I was doing in my traditional systematics classes were description. It was all about fixity. Nothing moved. Uh, And so... Where does design come into that? Because that's usually what makes us who we are. So yeah, you might have heard of John McMurray. Some of you have. Uh, he was critiquing, uh, oh, I had his name, in Descartes, right? Descartes, cogito, ergo, some, I think. Therefore, I am, right? Uh, whether that's true or not is another question. But you know, it might have been a tautology. But uh, over against him, humans are not just thinkers. We're actually agents. And the more you think about how you learn things, like um, we train people in apprenticeships. One of the things they did with us as engineers was put us back into the factory for a bit. So we're actually agents, not just thinkers. And agency is actually about creativity. So by agency, I don't mean I'm acting as someone else's agent. I'm acting as an agent of change or something. And that language never really emerged in my theological education which really raises this question for me as we're thinking about theology. Uh, Why do they look so different? And I know this sounds like an age-old debate. It's not really. It's been around for a while. Uh, I think Tertullian was basically asking questions about that. Um, One of his critiques of a a famous second-century heretic was this heretic had a problem with things actually coming into being in the material world, and Tertullian said, but that's history, that's what happened, deal with it, right? So that emphasis on history as opposed to more philosophical theology is not new. It's already going back to 
at the end of the second century and into the third. So this is not just some kind of modern invention. You know, you kind of get these pseudo-new evangelicals where it's kind of cool to kick, you know, the reform can or something because that's what we all do. It's our adult equivalent of growing our hair long and having a tat. Remember that? That's kind of our sophisticated version of doing that. Does that sound all right? <laughs> because it is sometimes, isn't it? Okay. okay, now I'm being a bit cheeky, but... Um, it can be that, right? And, and it gets dismissed as that, and we don't want it to be that. I think these are really important questions. Okay. So uh, can I say these are not places to work out our angst because we're rebelling against a church that's been frustrating for us. Uh, if that's the exercise, please go home. Right? We don't need you around this movement. You're going to give us a bad name, right? We don't want to do that. Um, we're really trying to wrestle with what, what everyone can see, and there's a difference between these two things. Um, William Tyndale recognised that when he was at Oxford. Uh, one of the reasons he left Oxford and went to Cambridge, always a good move, I think, in the 1520s. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, was because he was sick and tired of learning more about Aristotle than he was about Scripture. And again, all I'm, I'm just trying to draw attention to the fact that we are not the first who recognise there's a difference. And you can tell that. There is a difference between the way Scripture's been put together and the way we tend to do theology. Okay? And just, just pick up your theological textbook, and it's different, isn't it? Right. So I'm not trying to ask this in a pugilistic kind of way. I'm just interested as a sociologist as to why do they, do, why do they look different? Because it's not a neutral decision. Okay. It's not a neutral decision. Behind these ways of describing things are certain assumptions, certain preconceived ideas about the nature of truth, the nature of God, how you talk about it, how you come to know it, etc., etc. Okay? So I want to show you, um, can we show you another clip or do you want to take a short break for a few seconds? Another clip? Okay. So um, some of you, you heard of Ian McGilchrist, had anything to do with Regent, you know about him, a few of you have. Okay. Um, I found him quite helpful. So uh, here's a short clip where he talks and this guy draws pictures. And when that's done, uh, you'll probably want to go see it again and I can tell you where to do that. But then I'll briefly go just through some summaries of what he talked about and then it'll be time for discussion and a short break. Is that okay? So what we talk about so far is um, this whole thing is about theology, God, design, how that all fits together. And we began by talking about the shift in the way human beings organise knowledge. Right, so we're moving from kind of top down now to more trees, to interconnections and networks. And the question behind that is, what might that mean for us as to how we should think about who God is? Right. And of course, we're not the first ones to think about God when we've got scripture. Right. And then, you know, for me, I'm thinking, okay, given where that world was, what does Scripture look more like, top-down or more networked? I think it looks more networked. Right? So the implication behind this then is, um, who actually got it right? Did God get it right the first time? Or did he really need us to come along and help him sort this thing out to bring clarity where he actually missed stuff? Right Now, um, I happen to have a high view of God and... I find that kind of attitude profoundly arrogant, if you'll forgive me saying it. Right? It makes me really stroppy, actually. Good Australian word. I can say it here and you get it. Right? doesn't work in Canada. Right? I mean, seriously, to think that we can improve on, like, really? Really? And, and it happens, actually, not even in the time of Jesus, poor fellow. Right? He hasn't quite escaped this 
kind of more narrative approach for children. That's okay for Sunday school. But for the really intelligent people, really have to wait for the third and fourth century when at last we can get to do that. Is that what we're really saying? My seminary training was about that. You did your biblical studies work in order to feed this project. And again, that's not a neutral decision. Okay? So maybe to give us, uh, put a little more edge, if I haven't already, with words like profoundly arrogant. Okay? Uh, let's watch this clip uh, of Ian McGilchrist. Thank you, Tony, on the lights. Wonderful. The division of the brain is something that neuroscientists don't like to talk about anymore. It enjoyed a sort of popularity in the 60s and 70s um, after the first split brain operations and it led to a sort of popularization um, which has since been proved to be entirely false. Um, it's not true that one part of the brain does reason and the other does emotion. Both are profoundly involved in both. It's not true that language resides only in the left hemisphere. It doesn't. Important aspects are in the right. It's not true that visual imagery is only in the right hemisphere. Lots of it is in the left. And so in a sort of fit of despair, people have given up talking about it. But the problem won't really go away. Because this organ, which is all about making connection, is profoundly divided. It's there inside all of us. And it's got more divided over the course of human evolution. So that the ratio of the corpus callosum to the volume of the hemispheres has got smaller over evolution. And the plot thickens when you realize that one of the main, if not the main, function of the corpus callosum is in fact to inhibit. It's to inhibit the other hemisphere. So something very important is going on here about keeping things apart from one another. And not only that, the brain is profoundly asymmetric. It's broader uh, at the back on the left and broader on the right at the front and slightly juts forward and backward. Um, and it's as though somebody got hold of the brain from underneath and given it a sort of sharp twist clockwise. What is all that about? If one just needed more brain space, one would do it symmetrically. The skull is symmetrical. The box in which all this is contained is symmetrical. Why go to trouble to expand some bits of one hemisphere and some bits of another unless they were doing rather different things? What are they doing? Well, it's not just we who have these divided brains. Birds and animals have them as well. I think the simplest way to think of it is if you imagine a bird trying to feed on um, a, a seed against the background of of grit or pebbles, it's got to focus very narrowly and clearly on that little seed and be able to pick it out against that background. But it's also, if it's going to stay alive, it's got to actually keep a, a quite different kind of attention open. It's got to be on the lookout for predators uh, or for friends, for conspecifics, but for whatever else is going on. Now, it seems that birds and animals quite reliably use their left hemisphere for this narrow focused attention to something it already knows is of importance to it. And they keep their right hemisphere vigilant broadly for whatever might be without any commitment as to what that might be. And they also use their right hemispheres for making connections with the world. So they approach their mates and bond with their mates more using the right hemisphere. But then you come to the humans. And uh, it's true that actually in humans too, this kind of attention um, is one of the big differences. The right hemisphere gives sustained, broad, open vigilance, alertness, where the left hemisphere gives narrow, sharply focused attention to detail. And people who lose their right hemispheres have a pathological narrowing of the window of attention.
But humans are different. The big thing about humans is their frontal lobes. And the purpose of that part of the brain? To inhibit, to inhibit the rest of the brain, to stop the immediate happening. So standing back in time and space from the immediacy of experience. And that enables us to do two things. It enables us to do what neuroscientists are always telling us we're very good at, which is outwitting the other party, being Machiavellian. And that's interesting to me, because that's absolutely right. We can read other people's minds and intentions, and if we so want to, we can deceive them. But the bit that's always curiously missed out here is that um, it also enables us to empathize for the first time, because there's a sort of necessary distance from the world. Um, if you're right up against it, you just bite. But if you can stand back and see that other individual is an individual like me, who might have interests and values and feelings like mine, then you can make a bond. There's a sort of necessary distance, as there is in reading. Too close, you can't see anything. Too far, you can't read it. So the distance from the world that is provided is profoundly creative of all that is human, both the Machiavellian and the Erasmian. Now, to do the Machiavellian stuff, to manipulate the world, which is very important, we need to be able to use, interact with the world and use it for our benefit. Food is the starting point, but we also, with our left hemispheres, grasp using our right hands things and make tools. We also use that part of language to grasp things, as we say. It pins them down. So when we already know something's important and we want to be precise about it, we use our left hemispheres in that way. And to do that, we need a simplified version of reality. It's no good if you're fighting a campaign, having all the information on all the plant species that grow in the, in the uh, terrain of battle. What you need is to know the specifics of where certain things are that matter to you. And so you have a map and you have little flags. It's not reality, but it works better. The newness of the right hemisphere makes it a devil's advocate. It's always on the lookout for things that might be different from our expectations. It sees things in context. It understands implicit meaning, metaphor, body language, emotional expression in the face. It deals with an embodied world in which we stand embodied in relation to a world that is concrete. It understands individuals, not just categories. It actually has a, a disposition for the living rather than the mechanical. Um, and this is so marked that even in a left-hander who is actually using their right hemisphere in daily life to manipulate tools with their left hand, it is their left hemisphere, not their right hemisphere, in which tools and machines are coded. So this is very interesting. And it changes the view of the body. The body becomes an assemblage of parts in the left hemisphere. If I had to sum it all up, I would, I would get away from all those things that we used to say, reason and imagination. Let me make it very clear. For imagination, you need both hemispheres. Let me make it very clear. For reason, you need both hemispheres. So if I had to sum it up, I'd say the world of the left hemisphere, dependent on denotative language and abstraction, yields clarity and power to manipulate things that are known, fixed, static, isolated, decontextualized, explicit, general in nature, but ultimately lifeless. The right hemisphere, by contrast, yields a world of individual, changing, evolving, interconnected, implicit, incarnate, living beings within the context of the lived world, but in the nature of things never fully graspable, never perfectly known. And to this world, it exists in a certain relationship.
The knowledge that's mediated by the left hemisphere is, however, within a closed system. It has the advantage of perfection, but the perfection is bought ultimately at the price of emptiness. There's a problem here about the nature of the two worlds. They offer us two versions of the world, and obviously we combine them in different ways all the time. We need to rely on certain things to manipulate the world, but for a broad understanding of it, we need to use knowledge that comes from the right hemisphere. And it's my suggestion to you that in the history of Western culture, things started um, in the 6th century BC in the Augustan era and in the 15th, 16th century in, in Europe with a wonderful balancing of these hemispheres. But in each case, it drifted further to the left hemisphere's point of view. Nowadays, we live in a world which is paradoxical. We pursue happiness and it leads to resentment and it leads to unhappiness, and it leads, in fact, to an explosion of mental illness. We've pursued freedom, but we now live in a world which is more monitored um, by CCTV cameras, and in which our daily lives are more subjected to what de Tocqueville called a network of small, complicated rules that cover the surface of life and strangle freedom. More information, we have it in spades, but we get less and less able to use it to understand it, to be wise. There's a paradoxical relationship, as I know as a psychiatrist, between adversity and fulfillment, between restraint and freedom, between the knowledge of the part and wisdom about the whole. It's that machine model again that is supposed to answer everything, but it doesn't. Think about this. Even rationality is grounded in a leap of intuition. There is no way you can rationally prove that rationality is a good way to look at the world. We intuit that it is very helpful. And this is not new. At the other end of the process, rationality we know from Gödel's theorem, we know from what Pascal was saying hundreds of years before Gödel, that the end point of rationality is to demonstrate the limits to rationality. In our modern world, we've developed something that looks awfully like the left hemisphere's world. We prioritize the virtual over the real. The technical becomes important. Bureaucracy flourishes. The picture, however, is fragmented. There's a loss of uniqueness. The how has become subsumed in what? And the need for control leads to a paranoia in society that we need to govern and control everything. Why this shift? I think there are three reasons. One is the left hemisphere's talk is very convincing because it shaved everything that it doesn't find fits with its model off and cut it out. So this particular model is entirely self-consistent, largely because it's made itself so. I also call the left hemisphere the Berlusconi of the brain. Because... <laughs> because it controls the media. It's the one with which we... It's very vocal on its own behalf. The right hemisphere doesn't have a voice, and it can't construct these uh, same arguments. And I also think, rather more importantly, there's a sort of hall of mirrors effect. The more we get trapped into this, the more we undercut and ironize things that might have led us out of it, and we just get reflected back into more of what we know about what we know about what we know. And I just want to make it clear, I'm not against whatever it is the left hemisphere has to offer. Nobody could be more passionate in an age in which we neglect reason and we neglect careful use of language. Nobody could be more passionate than myself about language and about reason. It's just that I'm even more passionate about the right hemisphere and the need to return what that knows to a broader context. It turned out that Einstein's thinking somehow presaged this thing about the structure of the brain. He said, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant, but has forgotten the gift.
Okay. So, quiz time. Everyone got that, did they? <laughs> uh, you can actually find that on uh, Vimeo. Just look um, uh, McGilchrist, Master, Emissary, and uh, you can watch it to your heart's content. Okay. So, a uh, very quick summary then. Um, he wants to take the physiology of the brain seriously. I like that. It's not just theory. And they've actually done tests with people who are right brain damaged. And when they draw pictures of a cube, all, they get the lines right, but none of them are connected. So there is scientific evidence behind this. So essentially the argument then, two sides of the brain, both important, both need to be talking to one another. It's not making a choice between one or the other. They both need to interact. But here's a world of isolation, right? if you like, narrow focus, and in doing so excludes things. Okay. On the other hand, right brain is like a broad, he doesn't use this metaphor, but I think it works, a wide angle camera lens where everything's in focus but without judgment. Right? You're just seeing all the stuff that's there. And so what that results in are two worlds and a one, one world, abstraction, precision, but decontextualized, fixed, Static isolation certainly leads to clarity, no question about that, but its perfection comes at the risk of being empty and even lifeless. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I've sat in some theology classes that had exactly that impact on me, to be really honest. Not all of them, certain kinds, but okay. On the other hand, uh, those of you who are working in scripture will know now with uh, people's understanding of narrative and literature, metaphor, Richly textured, deeply personal, culturally embedded narratives, a world of the individual, the personal, characterized by what? The implicit, room for change, growth, interconnection. It's fundamentally about incarnation and living beings in a lived world. Right, so they're the two features that the right and left brain bring to the equation, if you like. And so in one sense, this final distinction. Okay. All right, so let's have some brief discussion time. Have you got time to do that? Just so throw things open for a bit. Um, why don't you um, talk to the person next to you? We'll give you five minutes um, to comment on some of this, and then we'll have some input from everybody. Okay, so off you go. If you need to go to the bathroom, you can do that too, but you have to chat in the bathroom. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.